Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, and Janet and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod. Shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing the hosts of the Sharkpedia podcast, Megan Holst and Amani Weberschultz. Megan is a third-year PhD student at UC Davis in the Graduate Group of Ecology, where she is studying the broad-nosed seven-gill shark in San Francisco Bay. Megan is equally passionate about conservation science as she is social justice and science communication work. In 2021, Megan co-founded the 501c3 nonprofit Minorities in Aquarium and Zoo Sciences and now maintains an executive directorship pursuing the mission to advance aquarium and zoo science by diversifying the professionals and their perspectives within it. Amani is a PhD student at the New Jersey Institute of Technology studying shark functional morphology and swimming kinematics. She is a co-founder and the chief financial officer for the 501c3 nonprofit Minorities in Shark Sciences, which is dedicated to fundraising for and creating a welcoming space for gender minorities of color in shark sciences. Outside of school, Amani also works as research assistant at the field school in Miami, where she assists with the Intro to Shark Research Skills course. Megan and Amani co-host the science podcast Sharkpedia, where the primary authors of Elasma Rank research are interviewed to communicate their science and strategies to the general public. Welcome to the Fisheries Podcast. I'm really excited you guys can both be here. Typically, I like to start with background questions. So where did your love of sharks begin? And I don't know how you guys can just like answer as you want. Megan, do you want to just answer first and I'll go after you for all the questions? Sure. My love of sharks, they are so misunderstood is like one thing I really just appreciate about them in general. And there's so much we don't know. Like I think people think because we have Shark Week and all these big shows that highlight sharks that we know so much about sharks. We actually know like very, very little about sharks. And so just in terms of like being a scientist, there's just so much science to be had, so much to learn and figure out. So that's, I think what attracted me is just, is having a lot of questions that weren't answered and deciding I was going to go answer them myself. Yeah, I second that. I think also for me, like I didn't, I wouldn't say that I'm a shark scientist who like from the time I was five, I loved sharks. Like I definitely don't fall into that category. I think I kind of just stumbled into sharks when I got to have an experience with them, which was during my undergrad. And I hadn't previously been thinking that sharks was the species I was going to research or the field that I was going to go into. It kind of just happened. But now that I'm here, I think I just like how much opportunity for communication there is with other people because sharks are so charismatic even to just the general public and so it's really fun to be able to like walk around in my daily life and get to talk to people about my job and have them be enthusiastic back to me because sometimes like my friends will talk about their job and like the person they're talking to his eyes will just glaze over (laughs) and I'm like wow that must suck everyone likes what I do (laughs) that's so true and like same for me I kind of stumbled into shark science as well it's definitely not something I had planned to do since I was five. Just so interesting that that was the case for both of us. I was also curious, Megan, because you did your master's on octopus. Were you interested in sharks before that? Or was it like you'd done your master's and then kind of fell into sharks work after that? Yeah, this is a good question. And something that Amani and I talk about kind of a lot is like there's no real 
there's no real thing as a shark scientist. Like that's not a real job title. It's kind of made up because you can you can apply like any scientific concept to sharks. Sharks are just like another organism, right? So I've always been super interested in animals and I think marine animals in particular, I've always been interested in just because there's so much we don't know about our oceans and there's this like there's just this inherent challenge to studying anything in the ocean, um, which I I like a good challenge. And I studied octopus because I had access to them, really. That's how it started. And I was doing behavior and physiology studies, and it was very lab-based. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to go for a PhD or not, but I started my master's. And then as I started, like halfway through my master's, I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I need more of this. So I decided to go on to a PhD and I wanted to differentiate a lot of like what I was doing. So my master's was very lab based and I really wanted to get back in the field and strengthen my field skills and have a project that would kind of force me to figure out a lot of that stuff. And I was already working on a study with sharks and I just thought, you know, this is a good organism that could support a PhD and it would definitely require a lot of field skills, like being out on a boat, out fishing, and getting some um, handling skills and taking real biological sampling that um, it would just like challenge me to sharpen my field skills. And so that's what my PhD really did for me. That's why I was so excited to to use seven gill sharks are my study species. And I was really excited to make them the focal point of my PhD. That's awesome. Amani, you do a lot of morphology type work with shark denticles. So are sharks a pretty good model species for that? Or could you, or do you like have plans of like applying those skills to other non-shark species as well? Yeah. So the, the field of morphology and functional morphology kind of the, the lead into that, or I guess like also the takeaway from that is that we do a lot to learn from nature, things that we can apply to human made objects. So I could study morphology probably on any fish and be able to find something that maybe we'd want to replicate to be able to use for our purposes from nature, because like what better thing to learn from than something that lives in the ocean or the realm that you are trying to be able to move through. And I kind of just chose denticles because I found them fascinating. Like, you know, you have to read papers in undergrad and half the time it was like a snooze fest for me. Like I really didn't want to read any of the papers I was reading. And I found that with denticles and like surface papers and biomechanics and biomimetics papers, I was very curious about them. And I really did want to spend time reading them as opposed to just like, oh, I have to do this for a class and I could care less and I'm going to forget everything after I do this presentation. So I could probably do it with anything else, but I ended up really wanting to do it with sharks. One, because I had access to them. So like I found denticles, which I was really interested in. And I also just so happened to have access to sharks but my PhD really doesn't have to include fieldwork. Like most of the fieldwork I do doesn't actually have to do with my PhD. It's just because I really like it. And for my sanity, I like having that mix. So I kind of just created what my PhD is in terms of the lab work and the fieldwork. And I love doing it. But like I could have chosen basically any fish at that point. It was kind of just you should do a PhD in the thing that you're interested in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And are denticles essentially like teeth skin? Is that... Yeah, the the Latin, it is. The Latin translation of dermal denticles, I believe, is like skin teeth or tooth skin. And that's mostly just because they have very similar properties to teeth. So they have enamel, 
um, or enameloid, which is like a subset of enamel, and dentine, and they have a central pulp cavity just like our teeth do. And they replace on a shark's body throughout their life, just like their teeth as well. And they're really like rough and pointy, some of them, and it can really hurt. So it can really feel like you're getting like chomped on just by the skin of a shark. Um, yeah. Oh, man, that's so cool. I guess I'll, I'll do a, a side question that may or may not be included. But in your podcast, you guys talk quite a bit about your individual research. Like if you have an episode where you talk about it or something like that. We haven't really focused on our research on an episode. Okay, perfect. Can you both give an overview, I guess, of what you're working on for your PhD past what we've already touched on here? Yeah. So my PhD is focusing on the broad-nosed seven-gill shark as my study species, in, specifically in San Francisco Bay, California. Um, this is an apex predator. And actually, when studies look at like the, the hierarchy of the food web, seven-gills actually place higher than even white sharks. But we don't even know so much about seven gill sharks uh, we know very little about them i didn't even know that wow yeah yeah <laughs> i yeah it's kind of cool <laughs> like i feel like seven gills are like this underdog that nobody looks at so i'm looking at a few things they're really concentrated in san francisco bay we see the babies everywhere and literature has kind of mentioned or said a one-off about San Francisco Bay being a pupping and nursery ground, but there's actually no data supporting that at all. So w one of my chapters for my PhD is just filling the criteria and demonstrating that San Francisco Bay is in fact a pupping and nursery ground for the seven gill shark. Now, people have mentioned that other places on our coastlines might also be pupping and nursery grounds for seven gill sharks but there's no evidence for that. Seven gill pups do not show up consistently in any other location around the world except for San Francisco Bay. With the exception of the population in Argentina, there's a bay between Argentina and Uruguay and pups show up seasonally during the summer. So they have a seasonal pupping and nursery ground, but they're not there year round. So San Francisco Bay is this only location where year round we have access to the juvenile life stages of this shark which is super, super cool because then they go to like 300 meters deep off our coastline and migrate up and down our coastline. So San Francisco Bay averages 15 feet deep. So it's like one of the best places to get access to this shark. So that's one of my chapters is just like, yes, this is a pupping and nursery ground and it's the only one that we know of for this population. Um, my second chapter is looking at the effects of catch and release fishing. They are a targeted species for fisheries here. People eat them in the Bay Area. They are apparently really good eating. I work a lot with the anglers in the Bay Area. I was just on one of the charters working with them. And I strongly believe we need to work with our anglers and with our fisheries to support sustainability and not necessarily just shut things down. Um, so one of my chapters is looking at how well they're surviving catch and release fishing so that we can say for sure if they're doing well for animals that aren't landed but just released because that happens a lot on charter boats they're like okay we don't want this one let it go are they surviving that or they end up dying from that that's an important question to know and then my last chapter is all social science just working with local anglers and trying to measure their knowledge about this shark that's so undocumented and just confirming that these people that have been fishing for these sharks for 30, 40, sometimes 50 years uh, can confirm 
information, like long-term information about these sharks that is otherwise undocumented. And it's also important to have their voice heard because fishermen are often left out of conversations when it comes to conservation. And to be honest with you, in the Bay Area, the anglers and especially the charter captains, they're doing more to manage the shark populations than even fish and wildlife is. They're doing active steps to make sure that the the adults are protected, for example. So like they don't let their clientele take big, mature adult females because they know that the females are coming into pup and they want to protect those animals. And I think that is really unique and cool and something that I want to capture and represent um, and get their, get the voice of our local fishing community documented and published and hopefully communicated out to the general public because they're very invested in, in the shark populations here. So that's a summary of my three chapters for my PhD around the broad-nosed seven-gill shark. Awesome. My life is not as put together as Megan's. <laughs> So I am looking at thermal denticles or shark scales. And for my PhD, I'm specifically looking at them at two kind of understudied regions on a shark, which is the nostrils of a shark and then also the tail. So a lot of historical denticle research has really only taken place along the lateral side of a shark's body and only on a couple of species, or it has looked at it through development. So there hasn't been a whole lot of looking at denticles and their influence on flow around a shark's body in other areas other than that kind of lateral side. So I'm looking at their nostrils and their tail largely because those are two areas where the flow and movement of water is really important to the shark, right? So at the nostrils, water gets into their nose just as they're swimming. They're not like inhaling water and then blowing it out like we inhale air and then let it out. So kind of looking at how denticles and the different patterns that they might have at the nostrils are affecting the ability of water to get in for odor detection and for their ability to smell, especially because inside of their nostrils, they have an olfactory bulb, which is literally just for like their whole like smelling apparatus, essentially. And it has really sensitive, delicate tissue in there. So you'd want to be able to kind of not have giant particles moving in through your nose that could maybe clog it, right? Like if you think of it, like a jet engine, for example, jets have areas where there's a really high speed um, or higher turbulence and then areas of lower turbulence. And the whole reason for that is that smaller particles can move through, whereas larger particles, because of their mass, are going to get moved out of that um, and the engine won't get clogged up. So it's kind of that kind of same idea just with denticles. And then on the tail, I'm looking at how flow is different depending on what the shape of those scales are at their tail. So you can think of it as literally if you like put a pebble in the water and you put like a spike in the water, the movement of water over those two things would be very different. And shark denticles are also very diverse in their shapes, right? You can have one that looks like a pebble and you can have one that looks like a spike. And those through their physical interactions are going to interact differently with the fluid around them. So I'm kind of basically just looking at that in summary. And the whole purpose of that is really looking at how we can learn from the way that denticles look for applications to things like underwater vehicles to make it so that we can move through the water easier, whether that be for like ROVs for science or boats and things like that. So it's really just kind of learning about how sharks manage to move through this fluid that we find so hard to move through so easily and learning how we can kind of mimic that. That's super cool. (laughs) I will say this because I think this is important. I do not have an engineering background. I did my undergrad in marine science. I took like the very basic science courses you had to take, like bio and chem and physics, and that's it, like only intro level stuff. 
And when I talk about my PhD research, people are often like, oh, you must have like an engineering background or you must have been really good at math. And I'm like, I failed every math class I took in college and then had to retake it. So if there's anything you get out of the story, it's that you are definitely not limited in the things that you can research based on your school performance or what your background is in school as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it also helps with doing like hard math and physics classes and stuff like that when you can apply it to things that you're actually like really interested in and like interested in. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm not sitting in class and they're like, if your plane starts here and ends there, how fast is it moving? I'm like, I don't care. It's a plane. It'll right. get from A to B. Yeah, for sure. Oh man. So cool. I wish we could, I always like struggle with these podcasts because I know you want to like make it short enough that people want to listen to it but then I get going and I'm like can we just talk for like three hours about science (laughs) yeah we also have this issue (laughs) yes Yes, we do (laughs) (laughs) all right well before we jump into the sharkpedia specific questions I did want to ask what the best and worst parts of running your respective nonprofits are because I think it's really cool that you both have started these mayas and miss to help facilitate diversity in, in these fields Um, And I would just like to know what your guys' perspectives on running those are. Yeah, there's (laughs) there's a lot there. Um, That's actually a pretty big question. So, yeah, I run Minorities in Aquarium and Zoo Sciences. And I'd say the best part is seeing organic connections happen. And when someone offers, like you don't even ask, someone just says, this organization did something for me. This is what I gained from it. Like that's the point, you know, is is we want to see people thrive as a result of this organization. And ultimately, frankly, we hope to not be needed. I hope that we can dismantle our organization at some point. But seeing that it can help and that it is working is probably the best part. I would say the worst part is (sighs) screaming into a void having difficult conversations with people and feeling like it doesn't get anywhere. You know, our organization is not just focused on supporting individuals of color in aquarium and zoo science, but it's also we're really encourage a lot of discussion and learning from from individuals when they come into our organization. And sometimes there's some really painful growing pains and sometimes the growing pains don't happen. Sometimes you just have to accept that, you know, you have to accept your losses and and kind of move on. So I think that can be frustrating is is trying so hard and just feeling like the person on the other end isn't reciprocating or, you know, some people are just never going to get it. And you kind of just have to accept that and move on. That's the hardest part for sure for me. Yeah, I second both of those things. I'll say different things so that I'm not just repeating <laughs> what you said. I, th- I mean, I think that the the first thing is really kind of has to be repeated. It's like we we founded Minorities in Shark Sciences with the hopes that it wouldn't be needed at some point, but because we knew it was needed now. And getting to help create opportunities for people that were not available to me and getting to help create opportunities for people who were way less privileged growing up than me. Right. Like I had parents who were pretty financially stable. And so it wasn't that much of a leap for me to decide to do a career that maybe might not pay me that much. Or the first shark experience I ever got, my parents were able to pay for part part of that after I got a scholarship. And 
I am like well aware that there are people who do not have that. And so being able to create opportunities for them and then see the change that it has made for them is really the most rewarding part of it for me. Like I would do that for the rest of my life if that's what I got to do. Right. I, the whole point is that I can use the privilege that I had to help people who don't have the same level of privilege as me. The worst, I think there's two, there's two that are tied for me. One is the steep learning curve of creating a nonprofit when you do not know what the heck you're doing. So like I run all the financials at Miss and I had to learn how to onboard someone into payroll from a different state than the state we were founded in. And I had to learn what accounts receivable means and like what bookkeeping is and how to manage like your restricted and your non-restricted funds. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of financial like backend stuff that you don't see when you look at a nonprofit that I, I like really just had to learn and like put the effort into learning how to do and I'm still learning, right? There's like, it's a very steep learning curve when it comes to stuff like that, especially on the back end. And I think the second is, it's not really the worst, but it was a very conscious decision for me to decide to basically dedicate this portion of my life to challenging something that is very real for me, right? Racism has been in my life since I was in preschool when I got called the N-word. Like it's been very obvious my entire life that I am of a race and color that some people don't like. And I would love to go around every day pretending that that's not a thing, right? Like I could just live my life and be like, I'm just going to ignore all of these things and just like do my thing and like ignore everything. And it was a very conscious decision to take on the emotional burden of making that a daily part of my life. Like I have to be aware that I'm going to get hate emails or messages because of what misses, or I have to be aware that people aren't going to agree with it when I tell them that I have a nonprofit and this is what it does. Like I have conversations where people with people where they're like, Oh, what's a nonprofit? And then I tell them and then they're like massively against it. Right. Like I have to, it was a very emotional and it's a very emotionally draining thing still to like do this in my daily life. And I love like the doing it, but I did not realize how emotionally hard it was going to be when I decided to do it. And so I would say that is probably like in the worst not like I regret it at all, but it's just not something I fully anticipated the like magnitude of the feeling of deciding to like dedicate that part of me to doing it. Absolutely. I mean, and like PhDs in grad school are just so enormously difficult to begin with. And then to like add this, like building a nonprofit (laughs) from the ground up on top of that is just so impressive. I know we're both like, let's just make our life more difficult. (laughs) Right. Amani and I like feed off of each other too. Because Amani and um, the co-founders of Miss, they organized Miss first. And then I saw what they were doing. And actually Amani was my inspiration of being like, you know, aquarium and zoo science needs something similar. Um, So I copied her and we just feed off of each other in chaos. And then we're like, oh, you want to do a podcast also? (laughs) Let's do it. We have enough we're doing? No, we don't. Let's start a podcast and just make our lives infinitely more busy. (laughs) It's a good thing we like each other, you know? I know. Seriously. (laughs) That's fabulous. Really quick, what is the best way for people to support both of your organizations? I think that the answer is going to be the same probably for both of us, but like telling people about it, if you have the means to donate, donating, um, don't like not even just money but like intellectual property like if you know how to do a certain thing and you think we could use the help like sending an email and being like I know how to file 
nonprofit taxes. And I would love to pro bono do that for you this year, like things, things like that. Um, and I think just really talking about it and like being an ally in the sense of when appropriate, like plugging, not even like, you don't have to say Mrs. Name, but like plugging why misses a thing in the important parts of making this field more diverse and inclusive, like wherever you go is a great way that I think people can support that takes minimal effort. Yeah. Honestly, I, the same thing for Maya is like, of course, uh, monetary donations are fantastic. They support scholarships for individuals to do professional development opportunities. And that's one of the things that we're most proud of, but there's other ways to get involved. Our memberships are completely free. And so if you're in aquarium and zoo science at all, like if you work at a zoo or aquarium, front of house, back of house, it doesn't matter. If you're involved and you and you just like want to be a part of this community, there's space for you. We want to encourage people to just get involved. You know, the the bar is very low, you know, what we're asking of people and and the easiest way to support one of these organizations, I think, is just by showing up. Showing up is the best way to support either organization. Awesome. Well, we alluded to this uh, in the answer just previous, but you guys both did start the Sharkpedia podcast a couple years ago. And that's part of why I wanted to bring you on is that I saw a post where you guys were getting ready to come back um, and start post publishing episodes again. And I thought it'd be really fun to give our listeners a chance to like plug into your podcast because I've listened to a few episodes and I really enjoy it. So what inspired you to start the Sharkpedia podcast to begin with? I'm gonna let Megan answer this because it was her idea. <laughs> it was very selfish. I just like when you're in college, you have to read a bunch of scientific articles. I was already reading these articles and I was just like, man, I wish I could just talk with the author and like ask them these questions. And I also was in a scientific communication course at UC Davis and, you know, was trying to think of a project to do for that class. And I was like, and I really love podcasts. Like I listen to podcasts kind of constantly when I'm walking the dog, when I'm driving. And I was just like, wouldn't it be cool if someone made reading scientific literature uh, more fun <laughs> and like easier because it's so hard. And I reached out to Amani and I was just like, listen, I have this weird idea where we start a podcast and someone like the author comes on. We just ask them all of the questions that we about their article that we just like didn't understand or want to know more about or like selfishly like some of the people we bring on the podcast are papers that we're referencing heavily for our PhDs and so we're just sitting there asking questions that is very helpful <laughs> to us <laughs> um, so like it started for selfish reasons we were just like man I really want to ask these questions and the fact that other people started listening to was very secondary for us. And, you know, I don't know what we expected, but we did not expect the amount of listeners that we have gained so far. And we've taken a really big break, which was not intentional. A lot of that was just life. And I had an unexpected career change. But we are booking uh, interviews right now so that we can start our podcast back up because it does, it helps us understand literature. And we just are very passionate about making science more accessible for others. Um, when it's not always very accessible, especially these articles are like often behind paywalls. So by discussing the article on a free podcast, it gives people access to these articles that they might not have otherwise. 
Yeah, I agree. And I would just add the, for me, the amount of people who aren't scientists who enjoy listening to it was like really shocking to me. And the amount of, of those people, like we've gotten DMs where they're like, I didn't know this shark fact and I'd never know this. And I looked at this paper and understood nothing. And then you guys talked about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. So it brings me, it brings me joy that we're also like making it more accessible. Um, and the fact that people have kept listening, even though we haven't put an episode out in like a year and a half. Like I think the last time I checked, I told Megan we were approaching 50,000 listens. And I was like, that's insane that people are still listening to it. And it just, we didn't expect it to be something that people really wanted to listen to. And Megan said she likes podcasts. I will add, I hate podcasts. <laughs> I don't listen to them at all because they just like don't stimulate my brain in that way. And so when we make episodes, I listen to it for the purposes of editing it. And then I never listen to it again. And I like don't listen to any other podcasts either, which I think is so funny because I feel like most podcasters, when they started doing a podcast, it's because they actually like podcasts. And I was just like, yeah, sure, Megan, I'll do a podcast with you, even though I don't want to listen to it ever. <laughs> I appreciate your your contributions. <laughs> that is amazing. And I like, I've always, I think that a lot where I'm like wanting to like go for a walk, but I also need to read. And like the combination of a podcast that like breaks down these scientific papers is so valuable. Yeah. I mean, I invite other people to also create a podcast. Mm -hmm. that does that for their field because we only do it for shark specific papers like elasmobranchs as a whole that's what we chose to focus on but like th there's a lot of scientific categories and i'm sure people in your field would enjoy reading papers about your field mm -hmm. that you would be able to talk about because like we don't know like i couldn't talk about a tina four or something like that right so like if you want to start a podcast that's tina fourpedia like go for it <laughs> <laughs> tina fourpedia <laughs> just get a whole series of series going. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome do you guys i would like you both to answer this have a favorite episode that you've published so far oh my i have to i need to open our spotify because i don't know i'm trying to think of like what my favorite to record was i think that might be an impossible question I will say that so I I don't I don't know if I can say what my favorite one we've recorded so far is. However, what I will say is that I am most excited about an interview coming up that is with Michelle Hoipel, Dr. Michelle Hoipel, who is the person that published this like criteria for defining pupping in nursery grounds and it's a paper I reference very heavily in my PhD and I have read this paper a hundred times and, you know, a huge part of, part of my qualifying exam was answering questions about this paper. And we're about to interview Dr. Hoipel on our podcast about that paper. And I'm very excited to ask all these questions that have just been like the basis of my entire PhD. <laughs> selfish. <laughs> selfish. Yeah. We're doing, we're here for selfish reasons. Um, okay, I think I also can't pick, but the ones that come to mind that I really liked recording were the cookie cutter episode that we did, just because I feel like I learned a lot about cookie cutter sharks that I did not know before and like couldn't wouldn't have even guessed. And then I also really liked doing the entanglement episode that we did because that's something that I don't really spend time researching or reading about because it is so far left field from what I research. 
And I also think that I learned a lot of valuable information. And I also think that was a really just good episode for other people who didn't know about what entanglement is. And it was just like, they were both very fun to record. Granted, all of them are fun to record. So it's still hard to pick. The parasite episode was really fun to record too. That was a cool one. We knew nothing about these parasites. And yeah, that was so interesting. Actually, one of my other favorite episodes in general to do is social science papers. Again, selfishly, because I'm doing that for one of my chapters for my PhD. But like learning what people have been able to like collate from an entire community is so cool to me. Like just being able what to. What a nerd. I'm such a nerd. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't care. Um, it's so cool. Just like the fact that you can make an actual science of that, like measuring people's knowledge and documenting it in a way that's meaningful is so cool to me. It's a very non-answer to your question. We just like named a bunch of episodes. I mean, I was thinking about it. I was like, well, if someone asked me, I'd be like, well, this one was my favorite because of this aspect of it. And this one was my favorite because of this aspect. So it's like, I don't know that I could be able to choose a favorite of mine either. But <laughs> I feel like it accomplished the goal of getting people excited about listening to your podcast if they haven't already. Because it made me want to go back and be like, oh, should I go listen to the Parasite episode? Let's see. <laughs> yes. Yes, you should. <laughs> yes, you should. Cool. So I, from a couple of the episodes that I've listened to, I know you talk sometimes about some wild field stories that have your guests have experienced and I know in your first episode you guys talked about some for yourselves and I was curious if you have had any new wild field stories that you're interested in sharing since you started the podcast yes I well I had one this last week that I'm really excited about do share yeah so on Sharkpedia we interviewed Dr. Andrew Nosal who's a scientist in Southern California studying soup fins and the paper we interviewed him about was triennial migrations of the soup fin shark. So the female soup fin shark every three years has a three-year cycle of migrating that's in correlation with their reproductive cycle. And after that, I stayed in touch with Dr. Nosel and you know, started communicating with him because he sees a lot of females down south and in San Francisco Bay we see a lot of males. We see females too, but a lot of males and juveniles, and he doesn't see a lot of those. So he actually sent up some acoustic tags to me, and this last week I just got three of them out, and it was the first time I got to, you know, on my own, put these acoustic tags in these animals and suture them up and feel really good about it. I, it was it worked. I checked that the tags were on and, you know, watching. She's them. a doctor. <laughs> Someone said that as I was suturing and I was like, not yet. <laughs> also not that kind of doctor. Um, but yeah, watching those animals swim away when you did, when you like have just learned something and like I did it on my own, like a lot of, I feel like a lot of my learning has been trial by fire and when it works, it's just so rewarding. So I'll say that like, that's not like a wild story or anything, but it's one, it's probably my most proud moment in the field since the first, since the first shark I sampled for my PhD. Um, that was originally my first favorite field story was just tagging that first animal. And now it's like getting acoustic tags. That was a big accomplishment for me. I can't choose. Like, I don't, there's so many. 
Um, you just I think... restrained a hammerhead on head. Oh yeah, that was like the coolest time of my life. That's true. That's a really cool one. So I, shark handling, really fun. But there is like, you know, you learn how to do it. And I, for the first time, got to restrain the head of a really beautiful hammerhead shark and then release her when we were done. And that's just one of those things that like when you start, um, like when I started training, I really only did tails and then I like worked up to the mid body and then I was learning how to land them on our platform and all these different things. And that was like one of those like peak things that I really wanted to reach. And I like got to do it. And then I like almost started crying after we let it go. Because <laughs> I was like, I can't believe that just happened. Like it is, I think the nice thing about field work is, and I think, I mean, even like science in general that I think might be a little bit different than my friends who like work in business um, or like finance or something is there really are like achievable milestones to pass that you can set that make you feel really good when you pass them. And so I had that moment. And I think the other thing that comes to mind is the first time I ever saw a sawfish because they just look fake. Like they just don't look real. And you see pictures of them and you're like, that's the government made that up. That's fake. Like <laughs> they just look absolutely insane. And the first time I saw one, I was just not expecting it because they're so endangered and so rare. And the people I work with, they have permits to be able to work them up. So we're able to actually catch them and work them up and then let them go. And I was just sitting there. It's like evening. And there's this beautiful sunset in the back. There's literally a video of this. This beautiful sunset. This beautiful, like, 13-foot sawfish. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I could die happy right now. Like, if this, if this sawfish was just like, I don't like you anymore, and, like, took me out, I'd be fine. Like, was, this, is, this is peak. This is the peak of my life. I think those two are probably the coolest, like, the ones that come to mind that really put massive smiles on my face. But in reality, like, I love all field things. And there are days that are not great. Like we had a day that it was pouring rain and it was freezing and like, you got to fish either way. So like, and when I say freezing, Megan's like, Amani, it wasn't freezing. It was Florida. But like, for me, it was freezing. <laughs> and there's things like, you know, it's fish guts and there's like all this bait and this grossness, but it's really fun. And I love all of it. And I think those are the two things that come to mind right now but if you ask me again in two hours it'll be different so yeah seriously fair enough <laughs> i will say i have a really cool video of amani and the team at field school reeling in a long line during a lightning storm there's just like lightning behind them like <laughs> and amani and uh, dr mcdonald and everyone is just like pulling in sharks like like i mean they do it like in their sleep you know they could do it with their eyes closed <laughs> And just seeing this like dramatic lightning storm behind them was pretty epic. <laughs> that was such that was such like the world said, you know what? I'm just gonna mess you guys up right now. That was a wild ride. <laughs> that was so wild, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, this sounds terrifying, but also so cool. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're essentially like moving into what will be like all of our like the favorite questions for the end so um we're just going to keep the theme of difficult questions with favorite going so what is your favorite fun fact about sharks (laughs) i wish people could see mine and amani's facial expressions (laughs) just like i always revert to the same one which is that in 2020 someone ct scanned the eyeball of a whale shark and found that they have their scales on their eyeballs Mm. which i love and they're the only species that we know about that has that right now uh and I just think that's super weird and odd but also really cool because if you translate that to like non-science language they basically they basically have teeth on their eyeballs <laughs> and I'm like that's a little weird but cool 
think maybe one of my favorite facts in general is that I think people underestimate sharks a lot and there's a lot of studies starting to come out about social behavior of sharks. Um, Dr. Alexandra McInturf does a lot of social behavior research and, you know, I just think it's, it just goes to show that there is cooperation with these fish. There's more to them than we necessarily give them credit for. And I don't know. I think it's just really cool that they can form these relationships with other, with other sharks. Yeah, absolutely. It's not as exciting as dermal dentals <laughs> on eyeballs, but you know, it's lame. <laughs> it's what came to mind. <laughs> Still very cool. Also, it's just really hard to tap uh, teeth on your eyeballs. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, wait. No, I have another one. I don't study sand tiger sharks at all. But one of the cool facts about them is that. They have interuterine cannibalism. So when they they'll have like two pups and it's survival of the fittest. One pup eats the other pup in the womb before they're born and like, you know, whatever. It's like gladiator, whatever <laughs> pup survives is the one that is pupped out and lives. And sand tigers also so sh- sharks in general, they don't have swim bladders, and swim bladders are what teleost fish like rockfish or stripers or whatever they have these swim bladders to help them regulate their buoyancy in the water and sharks don't have that and sand tigers will actually swallow air to help regulate their buoyancy and then when they're like trying to descend they'll like burp up some water or some air um so that they can sink and i just think that's a very bizarre adaptation for a shark as well Dang, that's wild. I always just thought it was like their fatty livers that help or like and like yes. how they swim. But it is, yeah, for like across the board in general, Alaskan ranks, their fatty livers is what help keep them buoyant. But sand tigers just have this additional weird adaptation of of swallowing air. Just so weird. Super cool. Awesome. Okay, so my last question before we get to our final five is do you guys have a general idea of when Sharkpedia is gonna return with some new episodes? Or should people just press the follow button and then find the new episodes when they come out? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we're we are booking our interviews right now. I think the goal would be by the end of November. Originally, we were like by in summertime we're coming out, and then that just like hardcore did not happen. Um, but it is happening. We are coming back. So hit that follow button. So you can be on in the loop of when we come back. Perfect. Okay, so Megan and Amani, we have come to the end of what we call the tough part of the interview and are down to our final five questions, which I think are fairly difficult in my opinion, but you all can decide. So it's a group of five questions. We ask each of the guests that come on the show. Uh, the first one is, what is your favorite fish? Might, might be the soup fin shark, also known as the taupe shark. They're very cool. Fair. My favorite fish, if you ask me my favorite shark, it's a very different question. My favorite fish is the silver spotted sculpin because they're beautiful. I just love them. Also, sculpins are really cool as a family, but the silver spotted sculpin is my favorite, like, fish at all. And I also really love pipefish. I go nuts for pipefish. Like, if you go seining or just, like, netting uh, and you pull up a pipefish, like, I go insane. I love them. They're so cool. When I met Megan, I got to see some pipefish 
And that was like one of the highlights of when I first met Megan over one of the summers that I was with her. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. You know, another, actually, now that Amani has been saying things, one of my favorite fish, if you've never seen it, you must Google it, the Pacific Spiny Lumpsucker. I don't think we had those when Amani was hanging out with me, but man, that is the weirdest and coolest fish. They're so weird. I think you're like the second guest that I've interviewed in a row that has mentioned the Pacific Spiny Lumpsucker, and I'm so happy about it. (laughs) Who else? Who else? Oh, it was my friend, uh, Katie Fury. She's another grad student at Montana State, but she had spent some time working in Alaska and was in tidal pools and like was able to actually like scoop one up. They're the weirdest. Yeah. They're so weird. I'm like, I don't understand how they like survive in the wild, to be honest, (laughs) but I love them so much. That's awesome. Okay, our next question is, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? <laughs> um, wow, these are hard questions. I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is the thing that I just shared about my favorite field story of, like, finally getting that acoustic tag in these suit fin sharks. I mean, I'll go back to what my, like, in Sharkpedia, I say this in one of our first episodes, one of my favorite Field Stories was just getting the first seven-gill shark on our boat and getting samples for my PhD. That was like just one of the most gratifying things. Like there's so much lead up and build up before that moment. And then finally getting your first animal samples is just like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it. (laughs) Like this is actually happening. So probably just the beginning. There's just like you can't really beat that first moment. Yeah. This is such a hard question. I think one of my favorite memories was probably learning how to CT scan, actually. I saw so I use CT scanning a lot in my research to look at denticles because they're really hard um, and calcified, and so they show up in a CT scan. And when I was learning how to CT scan, I was at Friday Harbor Labs, which is University of Washington's marine laboratory up on San Juan Island. And I was there for what is casually called fish class last last summer, which is five weeks worth of only fish. And you have to develop a project based on the fish that you have. And so I learned how to CT scan. And in the process of absolutely raiding through Adam Summers' freezers, which I was like, can I just go through all the freezers in your lab? And he was like, yeah, sure, I guess. I pulled out a Mako shark head and I CT scanned it. And it is to this day my favorite CT scan that I have. And it came out really good because CT scanning is really hard because your your specimen has to be still, completely still for you to have a good scan. And so I had to like pack this frozen shark head into a container with the hopes that it wasn't going to move because it was like an eight hour scan. It was very long. I did it overnight. I started it at 11 p.m. and it finished at eight in the morning. And I was super worried that I wasn't going to be able to get a good CT scan. And I did it one time and it was perfect the one time. And it is like my prized possession. <laughs> oh, science makes us do such odd things. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. Okay. Our next question is what is your dream job and or location? <laughs> I really like, man, are you recording the video? Because the facial expression no, is just like um, gold. <laughs> my dream job? Oh, no. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I'm doing it. Like, I just feel like I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to 
keep doing science. I want to keep making it more accessible for others. And I want to just keep answering questions that nobody else has answered yet. I know that's like kind of a boring answer, but like, I just want to keep doing this for the rest of my life if I can. Yeah, I think I'm going to second that. Because about, I'd say like about a month and a half ago, I was just like sitting in my room doing my work, like planning out my next couple of months, which were absolutely insane. And I realized that I am like 100% truly happy with what my life is right now in terms of my work. Like I have, I love my job, like with full meaning of the word, I love what I do. And even though there's parts of it that are really hard or boring, right? Like we don't all 100% love every single part of our job, but I have no qualms with what my life is right now when it comes to my work. And I don't really think that you can achieve much higher than that. And I don't know what my dream job would be because like, if this is how I feel right now, then like, what's after this? (laughs) I think my dream job is probably just ends up being one that I create for myself where I can still say that I truly love what I do and my job. Um, which is also like not an enjoyable answer because I'm not like, oh, I want to be a lead researcher at blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, I like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to like be content. It's so hard to get to a point in your career, or your life where you're content and happy. And I feel like I'm finally there too. And I just don't want to lose it. So if I can just like keep this going <laughs> in whatever, I don't know what that will look like, but mm-hmm. just keep it going would be great. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like one of the most refreshing answers I've heard. Like, it's really nice to hear that. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, next one. If money was on issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I feel like I'm doing them. (laughs) (laughs) Such a boring answer also. No, actually, one... So we have thresher sharks outside of Golden Gate Bridge. Someone just caught a thresher shark in San Francisco Bay a few weeks ago. Ugh, just so cool. That That's like a bucket list species for me, which is kind of a non-answer. I don't even know like what it is that I would necessarily study about them. I just like they are just like this unicorn species for me that I just would love to see up close um, and work with in some capacity. Maybe do some physiology studies with them because their physiology is just shark physiology in general is just crazy and very cool. I don't, I don't freaking know, man. <laughs> I like, I think this is an if money wasn't a problem and also like the reality of the world wasn't a problem. What project would you do? I think I would want to take scanning electron microscope images of all of the denticles all over the shark of every single shark species and stitch it together so you could look at a giant shark and see what all of their denticles look like. But that would literally take me like 500 years because it takes so long to take one SE image. Awesome. All right. Our last question is if there's one point of principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Sharks are important. And I hope that we like learn to appreciate them more than we're scared of them. Maybe that's what I want to say. I think mine is science doesn't need to be a competition and collaboration is the thing that we should all be focusing on rather than competing with each other to get things out. Because I think science really has a problem with being toxic purely out of the idea that we think we have to beat each other out at publishing something or beat each other out at being the first to discover something. And I think that's contributed a lot to the kind of hostile work environment that science is for some people. 
And if we all kind of like acknowledge that and then just realize that if we collaborate, like science gets a lot further than if we're all trying to beat each other, then science would just be a happier place for everybody. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. I know it was like tricky with your very busy schedules to get this scheduled, but I really appreciate it. If people want to find out uh, more information about you or Sharkpedia, how should they go about doing that? Yeah, you can follow me on social media platforms. My social media handle is at Meg Holst. That's M-E-G-H-O-L-S-T. Um, and they can follow stuff about our podcast at the Sharkpedia podcast. That's on Instagram and Twitter. Yep. And my like universal social media handle, social media handle. Wow. Obviously, I need coffee when it was 1 p.m. Social media handle <laughs> is at curly underscore biologist. And you can find me on a lot of different things. Awesome. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. Or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, sharks are important. We should appreciate them more than we fear them. And science doesn't need to be a competition. Mm-hmm.